Hello, yummy mummies. Welcome to Beyond the Bump, a podcast brought to you by Jade Caldwell and Sophie Pierce. This podcast is targeted at mums, mums to be, and women in general. And gents, feel free to have a listen too. It's a place to have real discussions and ask real questions, no matter how hard, with honest and authentic people. The aim is to have you feeling lighter, more supported, and more understood after every listen. Now, we can't promise that it will always be kept PG, so please be mindful around little ears. Here we go. Hello, Jade. Hello, Sophie and everybody listening. We have missed you all. Thank you so much for your generosity last week of letting us just very last minute have the (laughs) week off. But it was very much needed because I feel like even though we didn't do an episode last week, the last two weeks have been jam-packed and busy enough on my end as it is. So I can't imagine how we would have also fit in an episode. (laughs) I think we would be having this week off if we didn't have last week off. So I'm glad that we did. More forced as well. (laughs) But it was really, really nice on my end because I didn't actually realise how much I needed a break from everything and just pausing. Usually if we have a break, I would go on a holiday or I'd go and see family. I never sit still. And it really gave me the chance to look inwards and take a break. And I feel so much better, which is fantastic. You did the polar opposite to me. You have not stopped. How was your holiday? We'll start with you. You've looked inwards. What have you found and what can you teach the rest of us who have been running around like a headless chook? Can I learn anything from your time off? I don't know if anyone can learn anything from me, but I, (laughs) I can absolutely share, you know, what I've been doing. And I had an absolute... One of the biggest moments of my life really um, last week, long story wow. short, it was about nearly seven weeks that I I was depressed. So it was really dragging on. I went back to my psychiatrist and I just said, like, I'm, <laughs> I'm really exhausted now. I'm, I'm, I meditate and I cry. I walk down halfway down the driveway and I'm panicking. like this has gone on for too long. So I did actually have to up my medication, which is fine. And I've been seeing my psychologist and just really nutting out like the actual, like I, I believe that there is a reason why people have anxiety or they have depression there. Obviously there's a chemical imbalance, but there is a lot of contributing factors and talking about it makes a massive difference. And I've been really doing the work this year. I made a promise to myself at the start of the year that I wanted to feel peace within me. And I didn't realize that that meant going through the hardest, scariest journey of my life to actually get there. And although I'm not there yet, I feel that I'm so much closer than I have ever felt in my life. And the other day I went for a walk, had this overwhelming feeling that I couldn't do it. So I came back with the dogs and Harry could sort of see that I wasn't really in a good way. And he said, why don't you just leave the dogs here and actually go for a, go for a jog all the way around. And I was like, yeah, all right, I'll try that. So I went off, off I went again to do that. And I had this panic. I, I actually had a panic attack, but it was the first time that I 
talked myself through it and actually gave myself, it's like giving my inner child self-love and teaching myself that fear and scary emotions, you know, I would associate, you know, sadness or death or anger as a scary emotion. I kind of just walked and talked myself through the whole process and said, I'm safe. I'm absolutely safe. The most scariest thing I'm frightened of is my own mind. And if I can overcome that, then I feel really fucking accomplished. And I got through the whole walk and he said, do you feel better? And I said, I feel fucking exhausted because mentally I just went through the craziest thing of my life. You're like the physical walk was fine, but I've just been on an absolute (gasps) mental roller coaster in the past half hour. But I've got to say, if anyone is feeling, look, I'm not going to tell anyone what to do. I know that actually sitting with the horribleness of thoughts, anxiety or whatever is going on is really the only way with help that you can become more comfortable with what's going on. And I'm slowly learning that it's not just medication. It's not just ignoring it. It's not just being high and happy all the time. Well, not high, (laughs) happy all the time. It's actually being, you know, aware that every emotion is okay. And God, who am I to the Jade that was speaking a few weeks ago? It's just time is everything. I'll say that. So yeah, I'm in a good place, which is a great thing. And I'm going to continue doing the things that I need to be doing. And it's nice to feel light again. How good. Yeah. But how about you? Because you probably haven't been mentally busy, but you have been physically busy. Oh, I feel like I've been everything busy, but it's all good things. It's all very, very good things. So I don't want to come off the back of you talking about your mental health and be like, woe is me, I've been traveling, which is very tiring. How was Tazzy? It was so good. So basically over the past 10 days, we went down to Melbourne and then joined the whole rest of my side of the family in Tassie for Timmy, who's Dr. Timmy, if those haven't made the connections. For his 60th birthday, we all went to Tassie together. There was 12 of us, four kids, eight adults. Went to Tassie for five days, which was so much fun, especially because our family is a little bit like scattered geographically all over the place right now. And one of my brothers and I both have kids. So like life's busy and my other brother has a fur baby. So life's just (laughs) busy, hard to all catch up. So it was so nice to be together for five days. We were reminded that we really like one another and we all really get on really well. And I'm very grateful for the partners we all have that we all get on as well. I sat there actually and I was like, every family has to have that one witch or that like one partner that no one likes. And I was like, if I don't think there's one in the family, does that make it me? (laughs) (laughs) Did you ask them? (laughs) Well, no, I didn't want to know the answer, but I'm like, are my sister-in-law sitting there going, no, it's fucking you, Soph. None of us can stand you. We're all gritting our teeth for five days. I anyway, highly doubt it. I had a great time, so, you know, they might have <laughs> hated it. And then we went back to Melbourne for a few days and then we had my dad's actual 60th birthday party in Melbourne, which was really fun, caught up with heaps of 
um, like my parents' friends at the party that obviously because I've lived away for over a decade now, haven't caught up with heaps of them for a while, had to make a speech at the party. Dad wanted each of us to make a speech. I think I did well. My biggest fear was that now that I'm 26 weeks pregnant, and you can probably tell from this recording, I'm basically out of breath at rest. Mm. <laughs> and so I practiced my speech to Nick, my husband, before I did it. And he's like, babe, wait, stop. <laughs> he's like, just stop, slow down and take a breath. <laughs> he's like, you sound like you've run a fucking marathon and I cannot understand a word you're saying. <laughs> So I had to be very mindful when I got up. People were still making their way back to their chairs and I was like, please take your time. (laughs) I'm just doing some deep breathing up here. But it was really, really good. It was really, really good. We were so surprised that Dad even said he wanted a party. So the fact he had a party with like 50 mates there was amazing. amazing. But, yeah, I'm back home, home sweet home, fucking exhausted like it has been a a really non-stop couple of weeks just not being in our own space like kids haven't been in bed before eight o'clock each Mm. night it was one of those things I just want to remind everyone when you book a flight home or to somewhere and you look at the flight time and it lands at 8 30 and you go oh that's okay that's only an hour past their bedtime you're not in bed at 8 30 (laughs) and I feel like last night the flight was ever so slightly delayed as all flights are nowadays. We landed in the torrential rain. You know, the bags take a while to come out. You have to go get your car from the parking. We get into the car. The kids all of a sudden are like, we're hungry. And you know, there's like no food at home because you've been away for two weeks. Anyway, I think they finally fell asleep at 10.30. Oh, shit. Goldie was still awake at seven this morning. So poor things are off to daycare today. And I just want to say sorry to all their daycare educators because they, they are going to be feral. Yeah. Even though Poppy's at preschool, she said she can have the option to grab a pillow mm. during one of the playtimes and just have a lie down. So I might join her. I might grab a pillow and lie down in the corner oh, myself. You definitely deserve to. And so anyway, what good. you're saying is whenever you're looking at the flights, <laughs> And you see, oh, it's $20 cheaper. I might just do, don't do just it. Just add on two hours, all right? Yeah. Add on two hours because you're not in bed at the time that the plane lands. No. But, yeah, anyway, all is well. It's just, it's. just, I feel super grateful that I'm so excited to be home. It yeah. feels so nice to live in a place and, yeah, live a life that I'm really excited to be back to even though I've had such an incredible holiday do you know what I mean so I don't take that lightly like I'm really stoked that I'm excited to be home hey I've got a Rudolph fabulous for you yeah okay I'm gonna share it on social media this week so everyone knows what it is does it need some visual Uh, I'll explain it really quickly it is so freaking funny it's a girl that gets a can of tuna and wipes the juice on her exercise pants near her area and sits down we can say vagina 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 and sits down on the couch and gets her partner to come over and have a cuddle and he literally lays his head down and like jumps back up starts dry reaching 
going, what's going on? Anyway, long story short, he actually starts vomiting. He can't deal with the smell until she finally tells him, no, it's a joke. I have put a can of tuna in between my pants. Do you know what would be ruder? What? If he lay down and was just like, oh, yeah, this smells normal. Oh, my God. Is it rude or fabulous? It is kind of rude, but it's fabulous that she was pranking him. Could you imagine, though, just doing that to your partner and seeing what they would do? I I mean, no. In the current state that I'm in now, I would be <laughs> the one vomiting. So it would be like a prank on myself. I'm going to say rude or fabulous. I am 26 weeks pregnant. I've started to ve- develop groin pain because, oh, you know, no. I've, I've reached the heavily pregnant mark and I'm still vomiting quite frequently. So rude or fabulous. It's absolutely rude. So can you please not bring your tuna stories sorry. to the podcast? <laughs> sorry, not sorry. <laughs> Does everyone want Soph to bring back a third trimester diaries? Because when are you in the third trimester? Well, I think it technically starts at 28 weeks. So okay. we haven't done a second trimester story, uh, diaries because we felt like the second trimester is a bit boring, <laughs> but we're happy to bring it back for the final. I could do a second trimester recap. Yeah, do a recap. And then we could do a third trimester week by week diaries. Yeah. Let us know if you want to hear it. But we're going to stop gas bagging. We're just yeah. catching up on air because we haven't seen one another for yeah. two weeks. We chatted to the beautiful Megan this week. She is a couple's beautiful. therapist. You guys have been asking for this for a while and we totally get it. Post-COVID, post-natal, post-anything, pre-anything, during anything, relationships are hard. And we chatted to her about, you know, what couples therapy is, what are red flags in a relationship, how do we know when, you know, we've been acting like roommates for too long Mm. and it's time to just call it quits and yeah I loved this chat. I loved it too I feel like we spoke more about the positive side of relationships because obviously you do your best to keep the relationship together but I do want to emphasize that you know breaking up or splitting up is okay if you really have done everything you can do or you really just don't want to do it anymore. I think that is a really important message to people that have split up and are listening to this going, oh, actually that's not all it took to stay together or this is actually a different state of mind. I, I completely understand that everyone that has split up has had numerous issues or reasons to do so. So just know that we absolutely hear you and this is just an overall of you guys putting in questions and Megan answering them the best she could and she did a wonderful job. We hope you enjoy. Hello Megan, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. My name is Megan Kozak. I am the Director of a Psychology and Counselling Practice in Brisbane. So it's a private practice there in New Farm. And I'm a couples therapist, which is fantastic. I work with individuals, couples and organisations 
all about relationship, but the bulk of my work is really in couples therapy, which I love. So I'm really excited to be here to talk to you about it. I just imagine I have this vision of you sitting there and just dealing with people screaming at each other on the couch. (laughs) Is that what it's like? Oh, there are days, to be honest, there are days (laughs) where that's remarkably spot on, right? But for the most part, no, there's this old adage that more couples die from ice than fire. And so often I'll see couples who'll come in who don't know how to talk to each other anymore. And that's more the work that I do. And I do feel like, because we put a question sticker out to our beautiful listeners on Instagram about things that they wanted us to discuss with you. And I do actually think that so much of it was how do we initiate the conversation rather than how do we put out the fire? So, you know, a lot of it is the fear of having the conversation in Mm. the first place and is, do I bite my tongue? Will that be more beneficial than bringing it up and it turning into an argument? But I feel like the term couples therapy is thrown around so much Mm -hmm. and it's kind of like it has this stigma almost like oh you sleep in separate beds or oh you go to couples therapy which I think is not accurate. So we book a session with you. What happens? Uh, it's a, such a great question. There is a whole lot of stigma and a whole lot of unknown, you know, and there's this um, Alfred Hitchcock, the fabulous filmmaker, once said that the scariest thing is a closed door because we just don't know what's behind it. And that's kind of what it is with couples therapy. We think, oh, gosh, could it be useful? I don't know. Maybe it means everything's wrong. If I do go to couples therapy, that's the beginning of the end. So I get a lot of people <laughs> who come in who are a little bit terrified. And so one of the first things I tell them is, it's okay. It's like you're going to be on Oprah. I'm just going to ask you a whole bunch of questions for a little while. You're going to be just fine. Without the millions of viewers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Without the millions. Just you and me. That's right. That just, and also, it's so rare that couples will come into my office just to let me know everything's brilliant. You know, that's a very rare day. So you're in such good company. We're going to come in here and we're just going to have a bit of a chat. You're going to tell me how life's going for you, what's been great, what's been really hard and what you hope for. And that's the biggest shift that happens for people because we come in thinking about or they come in thinking about all the things that they're worried about or the things that are really, really wrong. And actually what I want to know is what could be really great? What are you really hoping for? If you could design your marriage, which actually you can, what would that look like for you? And then how can I help you get there? And I think this is going to be a really important conversation for our listeners because post-COVID, postpartum, these are two major things that people have been really struggling with, especially relationship-wise. And I feel like it's a conversation that they may not want to have like personally right now, but if they have something to listen to to make them feel like, oh, okay, I can understand this better. Maybe couples therapy is something we should go down or maybe I'm thinking this. It sort of just gets the the ball rolling. How does a couple find a good couples therapist? Oh, great question. So you can imagine if we've got a, like a pain in our tooth, we don't bother, we don't worry, we call a dentist straight away. That's totally mm. fine. And we look for some reviews and we find someone who's good. If there's a noise in our car, we don't wait for 12 months before doing something. We go to a mechanic and we listen to people who've had great experiences. It's the same kind of thing. First of all, we don't put it off. So when we look at the research, the average time it takes for a couple to seek help is six years. Isn't that unreal? Yeah. So from the point of going, gee, something feels a bit wrong or a bit off, six years later they go, yeah, maybe we should do something about that. And at that point, the level of urgency or fear Mm. or worry that's wrapped up in that is so big that often they'll just go to the first person they can find who's got availability, which can be really tricky, especially in these post-COVID times because we've all got wait lists up to wazoo at the moment. So it's pretty tricky. So what I would say is, first of all, 
get in early, right? It's not a terrible, horrible, terrifying thing. People are lovely. I'm quite a nice person for the most part, really. Come on over and say hi to, you know, to anybody. You sound like heaven, so <laughs> I'd definitely come and see you just to hang out. <laughs> but the other part of it is to look for people who've got specific training in this area. So whether it's us psychotherapist, a counsellor or a psychologist, any one of those people can say, and I work with couples, right? Which is Mm. interesting and good to know. But what you're looking for is someone who is trained in a specific type of couples therapy. So I'm trained in Gottman Method Couples Therapy, which is a particular type of couples therapy, which is really evidence-based. So I'd be looking for someone who's trained in Gottman or EFT, which is emotion-focused therapy, because then you know they've had to go through extensive training and assessment in order to be able to call themselves a Gottman clinician or an EFT clinician, and you know you're in safe hands. And what are some signs that your relationship could benefit from therapy? Because I don't know if it's from movies or what, but I feel like often people think, or I've had thoughts in the past that couples therapy is something you do. It's the last resort before you separate or one of the people in the couple have used it as an ultimatum to say, Mm. it's either this or we're done. But I, as you say, like, if the average amount of people are waiting six years, like surely there's signs six years earlier. What are those things that we should be looking for to think, oh, maybe this could benefit us? So there's a few things that we notice. So I do a lot of work with couples who are in transition times. So couples where there's a new baby, there's a new job, there's a new rhythm to life, and they're trying to figure out how do we do this better. And that's really preventative. They're not coming to me because something's terrible and awful. They're coming because things are going about 60% out of 100. And they'd like to really bump that up a bit higher because they really love their partner and they want to do this well, but they've reached the limit of the skills that they have. So they want to learn a few more. So that's always a delight in that space. So transitional times, I work with couples who are recovering from trauma. So whether that's infidelity, whether that's some other kind of trauma, they've lost a loved one or a baby. So couples who are experiencing, how do we get through this time together and turn towards each other instead of away? Mm. And couples who just feel like things are a bit off. So often I'll have couples who come in and say, I feel like we're flatmates who live together. Mm. I feel like we're really good co-parents. But in terms of our relationship, that was lost a long time ago. Can we find it again? And I feel like when you have a relationship and you start going through different journeys of life, of having babies, obviously we go through little mountains of highs and lows. But I feel like when you're in the thick of it, you don't have a clear state of mind to go, I don't see the difference between I am not in love with you anymore to, oh no, I'm just completely burnt out. How do you know the different signs? These are fantastic questions. Are these yours or do they come from your listeners? Uh, We'd love to claim them, but we have (laughs) very, very clever listeners. She is fabulous. I'm loving them. Well, it's a a bit of A and a bit of B, right? So there's fantastic research out there. So there's a researcher called Michael Gurry and a researcher called John Gottman. They've done these longitudinal studies over 40 years. So that's following couples for 40 years of their relationship, which is pretty amazing. And what they've discovered is that there are rhythms to relationship, right? And there are rhythms of highs and rhythms of lows. And we know that anecdotally. We know that not every day is rosy. Holy moly. Some days you wake up and there's vomit in your hair and you think it's as good as it's going to get, right? And that's okay. We have those moments. But what we've discovered is at the beginning of a relationship, 
there's this phase that's called limerence, which lasts for about 18 months to two years. And that's that falling in love phase. It even sounds beautiful, like limerence. It's like sparkly and fun and fabulous, right? And everything's great. It's like, oh, you left the cupboard doors open. Who cares? You're so wonderful. Right? All of these things are great. (laughs) Let's have sex on a different surface. That's exactly right. Yes. You're turning me on. today. What? Yeah, absolutely. And that lasts for about two years, roughly. And then there's a bit of a plateau where the level of satisfaction is still really high, but it doesn't have that steep incline of discovering someone new. And that lasts until around six to nine years. And then around that window of six to nine years into the relationship, there's a dip that happens. That dip doesn't mean it lasts for three years. It just means at some point in that window, there's a bit of a dip in satisfaction that happens. And that tends to be because of external stresses. So you've had a new baby, you've moved houses, change of jobs, there's a loss of a loved one, all of these different big external stresses, which make us feel like, oh my gosh, I just have nothing in the tank. I just have nothing to give myself, let alone you. And so the level of satisfaction really drops there. And that research correlates with the Australian statistics around divorce. So separation Mm. and divorce are highest between eight and 12 years in Australia because we get to this point where we go, this is not as fun as it used to be. This is really hard. Hang on. Maybe this isn't just life. Maybe this is you and me. Maybe we're doing this wrong. And so couples either tap out at that stage or they tap into each other. And so that's the opportunity there. It's this, yeah, it's a challenge, but there's a beautiful opportunity to work through that and move to this other side of that phase, which is a beautiful new phase called trust because you get there and you think, wow, we survived that. We got through that. This person is going to be next to me forever. This is going to be amazing. I don't know if it's an old-fashioned myth, but when you get married, a lot of people say that that first year is one of the hardest and that doesn't even mean when you have like met each other for three months, you get married. You can be literally with that person for 10 to 12 years, get married, and then for some reason that year of marriage is really, really hard. Is that true and why do you think that happens? Absolutely, it's true, yes. And it's also true in the first year of parenthood. It's also true in the first year of retirement. It's true in any phase where your change is a change of identity and a change of self. So this is less to do with the fact that I've just moved in with someone new. Sure, does that have something to do with it? Of course it does. If that's your situation and you've only just moved in there. But even if you've been living with that person for six years and then you got married, there's a whole lot of connotation that comes with this idea of now I'm Suddenly someone's got this spouse. label. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. It's who am I and what am I bringing to this? And what is my family that I've grown up in, my family of origin? What have they taught me about what marriage or motherhood or retirement is? Wow. And how does that exist now in my life? How do I live that? And so that phase that you were talking about before that was the approximate eight to 10 years, did you say, after marriage, is that similar to what they call the seven-year itch or whatever? I feel like there was a reality TV show where they tried to tempt people out of their relationships, probably highly unethical. (laughs) But is that similar to that? Is that the same kind of idea? It's the same idea. You kind of get to this window where it's like, wow, you know each other well, you know the rhythms of life pretty well. There's a level of stagnation sometimes and then throw in there an external stressor and that's a lot to manage yeah 
How good. I've just reached six years, so can't wait to see how we go next year. <laughs> Keep you all posted. We're happy for now, but, hey, next year I might come back on and need eat, need even more from With you another Megan. baby too. Yeah, oh, yeah, and we'll be Brilliant. in the first year of the third baby as well. So, yeah, this Megan, I've got your number on speed dial. Yeah, <laughs> She's in Brisbane. It's fine. But, how, yeah, you're, yeah, you're close by. How do you approach your partner if you think that you would benefit from therapy without them thinking you know, taking offence to it? Yeah, that's a really lovely question because that's really hard, isn't it? And if you go up to them and say, I'm so sick of the way you've been treating me, you're never listening, you're never doing anything right, how likely are they wanting to go talk to someone else about that? Probably unlikely, right? And there's this beautiful little interview with Michelle Obama, which I watched many, many years ago, and she and Barak, she's talking about the two of them going to couples therapy. She said the point of her going was she wanted the therapist to just sit down there and tell Barack everything he was doing wrong so that clearly she could be vindicated. I've Mm. obviously been doing everything right all the way through, right? If we go in there with that attitude, like you're coming in to talk to a referee who's going to kind of tell you who's right and who's wrong, you're missing the mark because you're still, it's still me against you. It's still a competition. We want to reframe that. We're not talking to a referee. We're talking to a coach. Going to change the sports metaphor over, right? And we're talking about what we want, not what's wrong, but what we hope to get out of it. So Instead of saying, I'm so sick of you and everything that's gone wrong with us, if we go, I would love us to learn some better ways to communicate because I really love us and I want us to be happy and I think this is a golden opportunity to learn something new. If we can frame it in what we want rather than what we don't want, it really helps us feel like we can move in that direction positively together. And so often what I'll do is I'll give couples homework when they come into work with me and it won't always be homework that they do together. It might be, I want you to take these three questions and your job is to really unpack what's happening for you in this moment because you're bringing something into this dynamic, right? Because we all do. We all bring our own baggage into some kind of Of a space. We've all got work to do on our own. So absolutely, sometimes that is brilliantly useful advice. And do you think it's possible for couples to get over infidelity? Yeah, I actually do. So it's that's a really hot button issue and a, and a big question. I do a lot of work with couples who are recovering from infidelity and it's not an easy road by any no. means, but it's certainly possible, right? It's a type of trauma and we can recover from trauma, but it mm. takes specific skills. And within Gottman therapy, which is my area of training, there's actually a framework that we use, which is really structured. It's called Atone, Attune, Attach. And so what I really like about it is people come into me after they're recovering from an affair with one or both partners, and it feels like they're just in the middle of a storm and they just don't even know which way's up or where to go or how they'd even start to do this. And I just get to say, okay, we're just going to take it one step at a time. Here's step one. Here's step two. We're just going to walk this path out of this storm together and get to the other side. And that's really lovely to have like a framework to hold on to so that it feels like you've got someone who's walked this path before you rather than you having to figure it all out on your own. Yeah, that's so true. Now, if a partnership are planning on having a baby or they are already pregnant, what are some things that they can do to kind of set themselves up or or some discussions they can have to kind of set themselves up? Obviously, you can't avoid all conflict in a relationship, especially with a major life change like that. But what are some really important things discuss before you go into that? Or it may even be another transition in life. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, let's talk about the baby transition for yeah. a moment, right? Because that's a really <laughs> that's a one. lot that's of a our real, listeners yeah. as well. I yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So here are some cool ones, and the first two sound ridiculously simple, but the number of times we've had to walk back to this with married couples is unreal. Step one: 
do you want to have a baby? Right? <laughs> Huge like question. Yeah, that's a big question. Yeah. Because yeah, often because, it's just life telling you that that's the next step. Yeah. Totally. Do you want this or do you feel like you should or you're obligated to? It's the right thing. Well, my partner really wants to and I don't. So I'm going to feel really resentful if I do or if I don't. So do you want to have a baby? Okay, great. Now that we've established that, what's next, right? One of the next questions is how many kids do you want to have? Are you someone who's a one and done? Are you like, no, one for each hand and that's all I can manage? Do you think four is a minimum because then they've got a tribe? Like what is it that you would love to have? So often I will work with couples where they're a few years into their marriage and they've had one baby and then one partner really wants to have another one and they always have and the other one's like, do you know what? No, that was never going to be part of my plan. And so now they're at this point of going, well, how, what do we do? Do we get a dog? Like what's, <laughs> what's the compromise here? Like it's really tricky. So get on the same page as much as possible. And you know what? I remember growing up and thinking probably four. I reckon I'll have four. That'll be amazing. I had one and I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. I can't believe I thought I was going to have four. So I've had two and I'm like, and honey, that we're done. We are so done, right? And that's okay. Like our understandings change, but let's talk about them first, right? Mm. The other really important thing to consider is your family of origin. So the family you grew up in, we bring them with us wherever we go, but especially when we're creating a family of our own. And so we will bring into this new family that we're creating things that we want to really replicate and things that we want to really rebel against. And so we've got to have a look at that and know that going in because otherwise we're going to be really surprised that our version of normal and our partner's version of normal just don't match, right? And so if we think it's just incredibly important to do nighttime bedtime stories, right, and our partner couldn't care less about that, let's just watch YouTube, whatever, right, that's going to become a clash because there's a real value about that and it comes yeah. from your family and all of it's there. If Christmas Day is just for us in the morning and then we go and do family things or if someone else is like, no, I want to wake up with 20 people around yeah. me, like, yeah. it's going to cause a big clash. We've got to figure that out. So have a look at your family that you grew up in and go, what do I want to keep and what do I want to let go of and how could we be intentional about designing the family that we're building now? And it, with things like that, maybe you've heard tales of their upbringing or whatever, and maybe you don't agree with some of the things their parents were lax on or some of the things their parents were really strict on. How can you kind of bring those things up without, you know, being offensive and being like, I don't think the way you were parented was correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, your family of origin, well, we're not doing that, right? Yeah, uh, we're doing yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. 100% <laughs> wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, great question. Uh, get curious. Ask questions about it, right? Because the thing is, you can't have insight for someone else, right? So you might look at it from an outsider's perspective and be looking at it going, whoa, they were so codependent and enmeshed. There is no way we are doing that. Or you might look at it and go, that was beautiful, but that was a bit much for me, right? But ask questions instead of making a judgment about it and going, hey, have you ever thought that maybe your family is a little crazy? Like instead of doing that, like what was it like for you growing up? What were the things that you really loved? What were the things that were really tough? And what if your partner's not very good at communicating? Yeah, into that you would ask a question and they wouldn't know how to respond. Yeah. Well, nothing's asked back, I guess, as well. Well, yeah, yeah. you're not having a two-way conversation it's an about interrogation. Yeah, yeah, so you can't really move forward because you're not really getting any answer. 
Yeah. So sometimes that happens because our partner doesn't feel safe in communicating. So if they talk about something that's any deeper than how's the weather and how's the footy, right? Any deeper, it can feel like an unsafe environment. And that comes from somewhere. You know, that comes from either the fact that every time we talk about something deep, it ends in disaster or, you know, I wasn't allowed to bring up my own feelings as a kid. And so now I don't speak till I'm spoken to. There's all manner of different reasons why that might be there. So go gently. Right, go gently, ask the question and then listen to the answer and go one layer deeper, right? So if I was to say like, what was it like growing up in your family? And they said, yeah, it was pretty good. Go, oh, okay, what was good about it? Right, like listen and just go one layer deeper each time. So if you had a partner that was struggling to communicate with you about their past or just in general and you wanted to see a couple's therapist, how do you think that they would feel if they have trouble opening up to you? Or do you think it's like we're not professionals so you would have a better way of having like drawing it out? Yeah, drawing it out of them. Yeah, sure. It can go both ways, right? So sometimes people can feel far more comfortable talking to their partner than to an effective stranger. Other times it's actually really liberating to talk to someone who has no preconceived ideas about who you are and who you're supposed to be. And so in that moment, they're so willing to go, blah, this is all of it. Because I don't need you to think that I'm the best, wonderful husband, father person in the whole world. You don't know me from a bar. So if I can just tell you the whole thing. And that's often what happens. My partner and I both knew we wanted kids, but I don't really feel like we had these discussions beforehand. Do you think you can get a feel for what kind of parent someone is going to be before they're a parent? Or do you think it's really hard to predict? Because we had so many people write in saying that their main issue was, for example, that them and their partner have completely different parenting styles. So one of them is very into gentle parenting. The other one is very strict and, you know, uses a lot of bribery or whatever. Like, can you predict these things? Things or are they, do they just happen? Yeah, look, it's a little bit of A and a little bit of B, right? So you can predict elements of it because parenthood is kind of like putting your relationship under a magnifying glass. Mm. Everything's amplified, right? So if someone had a short temper, right, just in a yeah. regular relationship, <laughs> add in their no, no sleep and a high level of stress, like really watch that one fly, right? So that's going to be <laughs> amplified in that moment, yeah? I'm a warrior. Like I tend to just get worried and get in my head and overthink things and that sort of thing. And so that was me normally. Like I'd just be worried about what we're going to have for dinner tonight. Add in there the fact that now I've got to take care of a human being. Oh, my gosh. So true. And so my lovely partner was was kind of conscious that every now and then, like during normal life, occasionally I'd have a little, like a little worried meltdown of like, oh my goodness, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing with my life or my job or what's going on. And then gosh, when I was pregnant, the poor man, like it would have been like every two weeks I had this, like it got went from being every six months to every two weeks of like, oh, I'm going to be a terrible mother. What's going to happen? How's it going to go? So these experiences that we have are really amplified. So we look at them first, right? And then we also discover something new. So you know that beginning part of a relationship, that limerence time, part of what we're doing during that time is we're building something called love maps. That's kind of the term. Oh, my God, that's the cutest thing I've ever heard. Isn't it right? It's gorgeous. It's gotten a term. Yeah. It's like we're slowly creating a map of our partner's inner world and we add to it over time. And so we learn what they're like when they're stressed and at Christmas time and their favourite coffee order and the music that makes them cry. Like we discover all of it over that time. We learn them. 
when we move into parenthood, we're learning someone all over again because they have changed identity, right? There is this whole new person who is standing in front of you. And so the thing that made them cry six months ago is going to be wildly different, right? The nappy ad would never have made them cry years ago. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Exactly. (laughs) Now it's everything. So we've got to relearn them with a whole lot of curiosity and patience and compassion because they're learning themselves at the exact same time. Is it true that you will either parent like your parent did or you will do the polar opposite? Replicate or rebel. Yeah, Mm. for sure. But the alternative is you get selective. So often if we don't think about it, we tend to replicate it or we tend to rebel against it. But what we do when we slow down is we pick and choose because nobody's parent was perfect, right? And nobody's parent was 100% awful intentionally right? I'm using these as as vague generalizations, Mm. of course, right? But we look back and we might think, and gosh, I think this all the time as I am a parent, I'm like, whoa, gee, I gave them a whole lot of crap when I was a teenager, didn't I? They were actually doing a pretty solid job. Mm. And you learn that as you become a parent, you discover how hard it is to do this job. And then they were just making it up as they went along. You thought they just had it so together and they were so old and wise and you're like, you were like 30, that's not old. And winging it. Winging it, absolutely. And so it's understanding that, isn't it, and going, okay, given that they were winging it just like I am, she had a lot of compassion for them. What were the parts of what they did that really worked for me? And what were the parts that I look at and go, yeah, nice try, but let's take that one in a different direction. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I love that. So completely differing parenting styles is something that you can get past. Like does it it require compromise or is it actually possible for two parents in the same household to parent completely Mm. differently? Like a helicopter parent versus someone that is really, yeah, super relaxed. Yeah, look, it's possible if there are two wildly different parenting styles, there's a lot of danger in that, right? Because there are two very different expectations that are happening for the child. So depending on who I'm talking to or what's going on, how do I act and what do I do? And so what we're trying to do is create a really safe space for this little human to grow up in where they know what the rules of the game are. There are not two different rules for the same game. And so we want to understand that this little person is going to be safe and well held and looked after regardless of who they talk to. So Mm. if we can become a team rather than two different players with two different ideas, it really allows that to be fostered a little more. So often that means that there is a bit of compromise that has to happen. But we've got to dig in and understand the why a little bit first, right? So we can look at someone else's gentle parenting style or very strict, you know, arbitrary kind of parenting style and just make a judgment about it. If we judge or get defensive, we lose space for curiosity. So curiosity and defensiveness, they can't really coexist. Hmm. So we want to get curious and go, why is this so important to you, right? Where does this come from? Because it doesn't come from nowhere, right? Where does this come from? Why is it important? How does it make you feel? What's your ideal dream here? What is it that you're hoping for by having this parenting style? Are you hoping to raise a kid who feels really secure and attached to you? Okay, that makes sense to me, right? And then the other partner doing it for the other person. So having like a little interview session and finding out some of the answers to these questions. And then what we've got to do is look at our parenting style, figure out what is at our core of it, the pieces that would be like giving up the bones of our body, the things that are so important to us, right? If you were to draw a circle in the middle of a page and out of all the different pieces of your parenting style, you put the five most important things right in that center circle. 
right? And on the outside of that circle, you might put down the things that would be nice. They're a preference, but they're flexible on, right? Mm. You and your partner both did that. Those things that are in those center circles, that's your collaborative parenting style. That's what we're looking at. And I feel like so often those five things are going to be probably similar things. You're just going about it differently to hope to get the same outcome. Absolutely. Because really, no matter what parenting style you have, most of us are hoping for the same things in our household and from our kids. Yes. And when we notice that, when we acknowledge that and hear that, it's less like you against me and it's more like, oh, God, we do want the same thing. We're actually on the same page. We're just trying to cook this recipe in two different ways or solve this algebra equation in two different methods. Like we're just trying to get to the same destination in two different ways. What if we walked together? One thing that my partner and I consciously had to do kind of when we made the transition into parenthood was we both said to one another, look, we love one another. We want the best for one another. Let's each time someone does something automatically assume first that they were never trying to put you out by doing that. So like my husband would like get home later from something than he was meant to. And I would straight away be like, why the fuck are you late? I've been here with the kids. I wanted to do this, this, and this. And there was always a reason why he was late. Like he never did it just to piss me off. And I'm sure there are times when, you know, things get tit for tat and you do genuinely start doing things just to spite the other person. But that's a whole other story. But I was like, if we just frame it in the way that like, let's automatically assume that you didn't do that to annoy me, to, you know, disrespect me, to make my day worse. I feel like you can start the conversation so much easier. And it's probably the same with parenting styles that no one's parenting really because they're intentionally trying to ruin their child or annoy their partner or make the household a more chaotic place than it needs to be. I actually think saying that to your partner before you like say why are you late would actually change the dynamic of an argument or prevent Mm. an argument like saying I know you're not trying to upset me, but this is what happened because you were late. Because even mentally saying that, it's almost like registering in your brain, oh, hang on a minute, they're not deliberately trying to upset mm. you. This has upset you and now you're having a, mm. like you can And it's not letting them off scot-free. Like they're oh, still yeah. responsible for what they've done. I think it's just reducing the, the, the outrage. Yeah. 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 Sorry, oh, we're just I, having a couple therapy <laughs> session by ourselves. <laughs> Where did you do your research, yeah, doll? Google. <laughs> I love it. Oh, I could not love that more. I got life um, skills. I can't even remember what we were talking about beforehand. Oh, assuming the best, right? Yes. Assuming the best in your partner. And there's a name for it. It's called positive sentiment override, right? Oh, wow. That's what it's a it thing. Is. Yeah, it's a thing. It's a real thing, yeah. And so if we feel known, loved, and valued, right, Then if our partner does something stupid or says something thoughtless, we can look at them in that moment and go, gee, that must have been a bad day. Or that was a bit of a dick move, wasn't it? But really, he's a nice guy, right? We can look at it and understand the context behind it because we've got this real grounding. If we don't feel known, loved and valued by our partner, they might do the exact same thing. And it's a whole lot harder to assume Mm. the best, right? So we assume the worst in that moment instead. And we assume they were trying to spite us. We have a negative sentiment override. So wherever possible, if we can assume the best, and I love your idea of saying it first, I know it wasn't your intention, 
this is what happened though. When this happened, I felt because here's what I needed instead. It's a game changer. Now we chatted a little bit previously about that feeling of feeling like roommates and how it's very normal in relationships for there to be ebbs and flows. Yeah. So a lot of things that people worry about, especially after having kids, is losing that spark and feeling like that spark is gone. Is there like a certain amount of time that we can go, oh, it's fine that the spark's not here right now, it'll come back? Or is there a certain amount of time that we should be worried or a certain feeling that we should be looking out for? Like how do we know postpartum that it is I'm touched out, I'm tired, I have nothing left to give versus no, I actually just don't love you anymore and or I'm not in love with you anymore. (laughs) Yeah, great, great question. And a really brave question to ask. So whether that came from you or your listeners. Well, it was asked many, many, many times. So I want anyone to know that if they've had that thought or asked that, you're not alone in that feeling. That is a very common feeling, obviously, out there. hugely common, right? And I do so much work with couples who have got little babies or they're two years in and I do work with the Australian Breastfeeding Association around this. Like it's a really, really common experience because we do get to that point where we just feel exhausted and drained and there's nothing in the tank and we are touched out. If one more person touches my body today, I'm just going to scream. Like it's just really, really hard. We've got to understand that that idea of the spark, right, it changes in these different seasons, right? So the spark in those first two years, maybe that is having sex in every room of the house. Brilliant, fantastic. That's wonderful, right? The spark when you're pregnant that sense of intimacy that happens, if we change the word spark to the word intimacy for a minute here, right? That level of intimacy that happens, maybe that's your partner rubbing your feet because, oh my gosh, it feels like the most amazing thing in the world when you've had, you've been on your feet all day and you're carrying this enormous baby, right? That sense of connection and intimacy, that sense of spark that happens between us shifts and changes, right? When we're postpartum, there's a lot going on hormonally. There's so much going on physically, emotionally, mentally, hormonally, like just everything is in flux for us, including our whole sense of self and identity, right? And so if we feel insecure about how our body looks, if we feel worried about how our body feels in itself, if we have no time, like actually just no logistical time to spend with our partner, right? If we feel like even people asking anything more of us, like I have nothing left to give anybody at the moment, let alone you. I have nothing left to give to myself, right? We can't pour from an empty cup. There's nothing to give in that time, right? So we've got to give ourselves a little bit of grace, a little window of grace during that time to go, okay, let's see. What do I need? What do I need right now? Because it's going to look really different. So I remember we have, I have two little girls. So they're seven and nine now. So they're a bit older, but I just remember with our first daughter, I just, I lost who I was. I lost my sense of self in that. And that was terrifying to not really know who I was or what I looked like or felt like or needed. Right. And I remember my husband saying to me over and over, he would have said it to me, I don't know, four times a week. I know you're still in there. I remember you. I see you. Hello there. It's okay. We're going to find each other again. Yeah. And I just remember that that was so emotional Because that's been me recently while being pregnant, like promising to my husband that I'm like, I will come back. Yes. I promise I'm coming back. That's exactly it. And I needed him 
to say that to me. I needed him to go, hey, I still see you. I know you're underneath layers and layers of just everything that you're dealing with right now, but you're not lost. You're not gone. You're still there. Yeah. I see you and I'm, I'm here ready for you. So what do you need now? Right. And so for me during that time, I, oh my gosh, I had, my first baby was 10 pounds, three. I didn't want to be touched for months, right? Like, holy moly. Oh God. <laughs> I was like, good luck holding my hand, buddy, let alone anything else. Like, it was, yeah. <laughs> don't even look at me. But, yeah. Don't look at me sideways. If you sneeze, like, yeah, anything. But what I needed to feel a sense of intimacy during that time, for whatever reason, it was whispering in my ear. I felt, re- it felt really close and connected, but it wasn't touching, right? But a sense of it's you and me, I'm right here, I've got you, you know, I'm I'm not going anywhere. And it was just so comforting. And I just felt so close without needing to be touched by this person who I deeply loved, Mm. but was just so touched out by. And that made me feel really loved. And so that's something he's continued to do almost every day since that time. And so now like we've got a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old. So sometimes it's, hey, honey, I'm taking out the garbage. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like female boner. Yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But every time I'm like, look at you loving on me. Like, look at you really showing me that. And so one of the things that we can do, right, during that time, there's this little exercise I do with couples, which is I feel loved when right? And so if you write that, and it doesn't matter, it doesn't have to be a formal thing, do it on the back of a napkin when you're having a coffee somewhere, like it could be anything, mm. right? I feel loved when, and then write down the five things that right now in this season, in this moment, make you feel really loved. And then get your partner to do the same and then talk them through it. Why does this make me feel really loved and valued? Trade it over and let that become a cheat sheet for this season. Yeah. Oh my like God. That's what I need right and now. Because I think when you are in, what did you call the phase that other people call the honeymoon phase, the litmus phase? Lim- limerence. Limerence yeah, phase. I do feel that anything gets you going. Like they've got totally. a new t shirt on and you're like, oh yeah, that's well, they sexy. Or Even yeah. their bad breath is hot. Yeah. And you're like, there's just like anything. Whereas all of a sudden, when there are all these other external things, your needs and wants are so much more specific. And I actually yes. said to Nick the other morning, because we have very different love languages. We have very different libidos. And obviously a part of the very different sex drive and libido is that in the past five and a half years, like I've had hyperemesis three times. I've breastfed oh two soon to be, hopefully maybe three times. Like obviously our past five and a half years, although although we've both become parents in that time have looked really, really Mm. different. And I actually said to him the other morning, he was going fishing in the morning. And I I feel like in the past, I would have been like, nah, he just needs to guess what is going to make me happy. And if you ask for someone to do something, then it takes away from the joy of asking. And the other day I said to him, I said, when you make me a coffee before you leave and put it in an insulated keep cup, and then I wake up in the, because, you know, he leaves at like 4.30 if he's going fishing. And I come downstairs, that makes me feel really, really loved. And I said, I would like you to do that for me tomorrow morning and I'm going to wake up and pretend that we never had this conversation (laughs) and that you just thought to do it. And you know what? I did wake up in the morning and I was like, I don't even care that I had to ask him to do that. Like I know that he thought of me this morning before he left. And I think sometimes we do need to get off our high horse and go, I'm just going to tell you how I like to be loved. Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Like your partner may be many things, but mind reader may not be top of the list. Like 100%. Absolutely. And also what we appreciate, appreciates. So if we say to our partner, hey, this makes me feel loved, 
they're going to be more likely to want to do that thing, aren't they? Like they love you. They want to care for you. So tell them. And even in an argument, like recently I was stressed out and I texted my husband and he was trying to call me and I didn't want to answer. And he explained to me when we got home and I calmed down, he was like, I can't hear you. I can't hear your urgency. And I I can't understand through a text. You need to know that I need to hear you for me to understand. And the only way I can do that is that when you speak, I know exactly what's going on. But if I can't hear you, I'm stressed. I don't know how I can help you. So that really took to me. I was like, okay, I I need to make a big effort moving forward that even if I'm stubborn or there's something going on, he can make a situation a little bit better if I can communicate actually, you know, the way he wants me to so we can move forward. Beautiful. And and this is a 15-year relationship, right? Yeah. And we're learning yeah. more now than we ever had even at the start. Like the start is fluffy and and light and fun, but I feel like when you have children and you go through so many lows and highs. How special is that person to you? How much have you gone through with each other? I, I like I have never loved someone, obviously my kids, but I have never loved someone more than him yeah. now. I don't know how to articulate this, but if you really both want it, is that all it takes to make it work? Or does sometimes like it's just, just something is not working and things have to end? I love what you're talking about there in terms of understanding that you're both going through this extraordinary, amazing, awful, fantastic experience Mm. together. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly what it is. That's parenthood. The end. That's parenthood. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Because you're being being marinated in this exact same experience at the same time and nobody else knows exactly what it's like than you and your partner. Nobody else loves these kids the same as you and your partner. Nobody else knows how special or how hard or how amazing you have both worked to get that first step or to get them to take the bottle or to get them to read after you've taken home that damn folio 15 times, right? Like every one of those wins, like that is the person who knows all of the behind the scenes work that took you to get that win. So that lovely like that you get on Instagram, like that's very nice they see the fluffy picture but they have no idea necessarily of everything that it took to get there and so Mm. someone who knows the background can celebrate with you with the level of celebration that is required for those moments or can sit with you with the level of devastation in the moments when things are really really hard even if it doesn't seem hard Uh, to someone else like who cares that they didn't sleep through the night right get over it tomorrow will be better and you think no you don't understand they didn't sleep through the night for the for the last 48 night in a row like it's they know that and so if you can lean into that experience with them and appreciate the fact that you've got someone who's walking this path with you oh it's just gold right absolutely golden if you've got someone who doesn't want to lean into that experience that's where it gets really hard right that's where it gets really really tricky this sense of oh well I'm I'll work you just do all of the other stuff and I'll work and uh, we'll touch base on Saturday right sound good like that's where it gets tricky and we've got to understand well what do both people really need in this time and try to lean into both people's needs and if both people don't lean into each other if one person is like I want to see a couple therapist I want to really make this work and the other one is like absolutely not. I don't believe that we need to do that. I don't believe anything is wrong. Where do you go from there? 
So, I mean, you can't, as I said before, you can't have insight for someone, right? So there's no use dragging your partner along. Like I've had this more than one occasion. One person will come in and sit down and they'll be ready and the other person will be sitting there with their arms folded, glaring at me like I'm the worst person. I'm like, mm. hello, how lovely to meet you. <laughs> um, so it's, it's this interesting moment that happens occasionally, right? So both people have got to want to be there, right? So if you're wanting to do this, but your partner is actively against it. Now, this is not, I haven't spoken to my partner. Talk to your partner first. Open the lines of communication. Talk about the hopes that might come out of it. If there is a big brick wall that happens then, okay, well, let's have a look to some fantastic podcasts. Let's read some amazing blogs. Let's figure out some different things. So I do some work with a brilliant organization. It's an international organization. It, it doesn't work in Australia. Actually, it works in the US and Canada but they just work with women. That's the purpose. But we upskill those women in this space so that they can bring that knowledge and information into their relationships. There are so many different ways you can do that. There's a beautiful podcast called Small Things Often, which is by the Gottmans, which is great. There's a free app you can get, which is called Gottman Card Decks that have got all of these pieces in it. So do some investigating and identify what could I do? What could I shift in this space to make this a helpful movement forward? And a question that was so common that came in, it seemed to be often in heterosexual relationships where the woman was taking on more of the stay-at-home role and the man was taking on more of the the working role. But I guess this can be applied to any relationship where there is that dynamic. But how how can we better explain to our partners that, you know, there's some feelings of resentment that have crept in or, or, you know, feelings like your entire world has changed, but theirs has barely changed without it turning into this tit for tat competition mm. on whose life's harder, competition about who's doing more. How can we start these discussions? Great question. Beautiful question. And really, really hard because it's hard to explain sometimes, especially to our partner who feels like they're working really hard and life has increased, you know, dramatically for them as well to say, yeah, okay, so you've had a bit of a shift in your life. This is true, but my identity has changed. My world is different. My work is different. My body has changed. My friends, the way I connect every piece of my life no longer looks the same as what it did. And from where I'm looking, most of yours looks pretty much the same right? Yes, you leave early on a Friday afternoon. Thank you so much for that. But the rest of that <laughs> seems to be pretty much the same, right? Like it's this really interesting dichotomy. And there's a lot of defensiveness that can happen, especially in heterosexual couples, the sense of, well, I don't have a uterus or I can't breastfeed or I can't, you know, all of the, mm. those things, or it makes more sense for me to be at work because you want to spend some time, right? There's a lot of defensiveness that can happen straight away. And as soon as there's defensiveness and criticism that get in there, we're on opposite teams mm. and nobody wins. But no one's listening. Teams. They're just listening. waiting for their turn to talk. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's it. They're just, while you're mm. talking, I'm thinking of what I'm going to say next. Yeah, absolutely. So what I would say is a couple of things, right? Do a great big blurt would be the word I would use. I was wondering what you going to say then. Right. <laughs> a big blurt. So a blurt is this idea of just pouring everything out, whether you say it to a friend who you really trust, who's in a similar time frame, whether you write it all out on a piece of paper, pour out everything, every yucky, horrible, terrible thought that you've got going on, how unfair it is, how wronged you feel, how you wish he could carry the next child or everything. doesn't matter how ridiculous it is, just blurt it all out on paper and then look at it and read over it and go, okay. So out of this, 
What is it telling me, right? Because our emotions are there to help us. What if resentment was there to help us? What if it was there as a clue to be investigated? What if the emotion was a compass that was pointing us towards a need? So if we're feeling resentful, it's because there's a need that's not being filled. I feel resentful because I don't have the time that you have. You're going to the gym on Saturday morning and I feel lucky if I get to have a shower. Like, Mm. let's identify how do I feel and what do I need? And instead of talking about all of the stuff that we blurted out on the paper, let's just focus on those two things. Hey, this is how I feel and this is what I need. Wow. Because with that, the resentment and the defensiveness, that tends to dissipate. Yeah, because otherwise it just kind of all gets lost in it. It's all truth, but it all gets lost in this kind of, and I often say that to my husband, if he brings up a point where, you know, he feels like I could pull my weight more or he feels like this is missing from the relationship or whatever, I often have to say to him, look, you're really good at coming up with solutions and expressing yourself in the moment. But I say to him, I'm like, I'm actually not ready to talk. I actually have to go away and think about what not necessarily my argument is, but like what my points in this conversation are, because otherwise I'm going to say a whole heap of things that I don't actually think are true or important. And I'm going to miss out on saying the things that actually then two days later, I'll go, why didn't you say this? You start thinking about it. And so, but it can be really hard because he'll be like, but we've got a pocket of time now that we can talk about it. Like the girls are asleep or whatever. But I'm like, yeah, but you've just lump this on me. Like I actually need a second to go away and think about what my true thoughts in this area of discussion are. Oh, definitely. Because we we get flustered. Like the word around that we use is flooded. So it's when we've got these stress hormones of adrenaline and and cortisol. It's a big one. It's a big one I use. (laughs) (laughs) When when we're in that fuck you mindset, right? We we will say things that we don't mean because we feel really stressed, but we want to make sure that we're heard, but you're not hearing me. And so we just throw things back at our partner and we totally miss the point and we don't solve the problem. And so if you need to take a minute and go, we do have a window of time, which is brilliant. So I want to use this window to figure out what I want to say about this. Right. So the next window of time, we can have that conversation. Hey, just imagine if we were having a conversation with our other halves and every time someone asked you a question, like Harry asked me a question, I said, Harry. That is a beautiful question. (laughs) Imagine how good he'd feel and how I feel. Like every time you say that, I'm like, I feel so good right now that you said that. So it wasn't even my question, but I feel fucking great that I said it. Imagine anyone, like if Billy's like, Mum, where's the snacks? Billy. That is a beautiful question, is it? I, I reckon we need to take this on board a little bit. I might try it today and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, everyone's, but, but would they start asking you more Babe, questions? Babe, where's the toilet paper? No, seriously, I think it would lead to more questions and I cannot. <laughs> Although, yeah, that's, where's the toilet paper? That is a great question. Where Why? does it normally live and do you think you'd be able to find it? Have you seen your legs? Do you know what they do? <laughs> yeah. I'm talking to my husband, not my child. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Love it. This is a big one for us, for, for my us. For, for my relationship and we have touched on it previously. <sighs> but what can we do if sex drives don't match up? 
Yeah, great question. Okay, so it's really normal and it's really normal even before KIT for sex drives not to totally match up. Like it might be a little bit closer, but it might not be exactly the same. And In the luminous okay. fluffy stage or whatever yeah. it's called, liminal, <laughs> marinal. Limerent stuff. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, right? And it changes on a whole lot of different things. If we've had a big week at work, if we've had a lot to drink, like there's lots of different reasons why we shift and change anyway. But throw in there like a postpartum experience, of course it's going to be wildly different. So if they don't match up, right, which let's normalise, almost nobody does actually, right? So in that moment, we actually want to be able to talk about it, yeah, because it's when things go unsaid that we start to create stories in our mind about the reasons behind it. So if we don't talk about it, I start to think, oh my gosh, maybe he thinks I don't like him. Oh geez, maybe he doesn't, maybe he's going to go get it somewhere else. Maybe actually he's not attracted to me anymore. Oh no, it's me. I need to be going to the gym five times a week. Like whatever the thing is we create. Then you get insecure, jealous, crazy. Absolutely. If we don't have a story, we will create one. And so we need to talk to our partner about it and go, hey, can we just have a really awkward conversation? I want to talk about sex because this is what's happening for me. I'm feeling stressed and worried and exhausted and tired. And I'm worried that you are going to do this or whatever it is, right? And so we talk about it. We get curious, right? And so within that, then there are some great questions to ask one another. Things like, what would good sex look like for you, right? Or what do you need to feel ready for sex or feel desirable. So, cause it's really different for different people. So for many couples, one of the phrases I use is sex begins at breakfast, right? This is not just like this idea of, oh, it's nine o'clock at night. Hey, do you feel like it? And you think, oh my God, there's nothing I feel like less of at the moment. Yeah, actually, yeah. Like I'm exhausted. Let me sleep. Right. Whereas over the course of the day, it's the whisper in the ear in the morning or the hug in the afternoon or the, the touch base with the text messages during the day. It's that sense of building intimacy that allows us to go, oh, I'd like to continue the conversation in a different way. So talk about it. And I think that it's that mother to lover switch as well. Like there can be this expectation that it's like, I'm home now. Oh yeah. Let me just like wipe this, like spew out of my hair. You know, like it's just, it's so hard to go from someone's you know, food source or carer yes. and their their bed and their their everything to all of a sudden, yeah, let's my now my body is this sexual being and sexual organ. And that does come easily for some people, but it has not come easily for me. And I've had to be like, we have to make time for dating and for talking yes. and for hugging. And yeah, maybe just like you know what I miss in a relationship? Come. A pash on the couch that doesn't yes. end up in something Sex. else. Like sometimes I just have to go, we're going to have a little make out now. Nothing else is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Because they, you remember the good old days of the dry hump? Oh, yeah. Where did the dry hump go? Yeah. <laughs> That's a great question very from quickly. Monday morning. I love it. <laughs> yeah. There were some people who wrote in saying, what do I do? I have way more of a sex drive than my yeah. male partner. Yeah, and I think that sure. because it's not seen as like, I guess, the quote unquote norm can lead to a lot of questions in a relationship where it's like, are you not yeah, like, you know, I've got a lot of friends who they have higher sex drives than their male partners and they're constantly like, do they not find me sexy? Like, is there something I'm doing wrong? Because mm. all of my other friends are talking about how their male partner just wants it all the time. And so yeah. I feel like that can even 
have more challenges because it's not what's seen as the norm. Yeah. And if we don't know the answer, we will make it up. Right. If we don't know the story, we will create our own. So with this here, if you imagine that intimacy is like a pyramid, like a triangle, right? And at the very, very top is sex. Right. So it's something that is kind of like the height of intimacy. It's where we would put it. It takes a whole lot of nakedness in every sense of the word. It's deeply vulnerable and connected, right? Underneath that, in this pyramid of intimacy, there are all of these different things that allow us to move up to the next level, right? So, and it's different for everybody. So not everybody is going to have tickling my back or rubbing my feet on that pyramid, right? Not everybody's going to have whispering in my ear. (laughs) (laughs) But we've got to understand. So what is it? Like, what is it that makes you feel lovable, desirable, sexy, engaged, connected? Like, what is it that makes you feel that way? So it doesn't mean we've got to jump from level 10 to level one on this pyramid, right? But what's on there? Like, what is it that I can do or we can do that allows us to move up one more step towards that sense of connection and intimacy? Because sometimes what we're looking for, as you were saying, it's not always sex. Maybe it is the passion on the couch. We're looking for connection and intimacy, Mm. but our partner doesn't necessarily know exactly what that looks like for us. So they're just assuming it's what they think, right? So let's find out what's on that pyramid of intimacy for each of us. What do we need to feel sexy, safe, connected, desirable? Share it with our partner so that we're not assuming or trying things that aren't working. We actually know what our partner likes, needs and wants. We had quite a few women actually write in saying, I find parenting so much easier when my partner is away. Mm. And some people who are in fly in, fly out, FIFO type relationships who said, I actually dread when they're coming home because life is just easier when they're not here. Is that a red flag? Is that a normal experience? Is that what? Yeah, it's super normal. It's really, really normal. Um, And especially with FIFO, because depending on your rhythm of time, you might be doing three weeks away, one week on, like whatever the rhythm of time is. So you've got to create a normal. The person who's at home, it's their job to keep this ship running, right? And so when someone else comes back in, they've really disrupted the ship and it's all over the place. So that's a very normal experience. Something I'd parallel it to, when my husband and I first got married, we thought it would be really cute to go shopping together. Like we thought that that'd be great and really, really fun. And um, <laughs> we spent, I reckon, like about 11 minutes standing in front of the damn rice aisle going, I don't care. Could you pick? Well, what about you? What do you think? What? And I just, like, we hated it, hated yeah. it and left it going, oh, that was awful. Never again shall we do that. So we divide and conquer, right? So there are parts of parenthood, just pieces of it where we look at it and go, do we need two people to do this? Or do we just use our skills and divide and conquer and make this thing work? But there are other parts where we really do want everybody to be together to do that, right? That's lovely. So at the moment, we're reading our kids Harry Potter, they're seven and nine, and we're doing it as a family. And so we all sit together in the bedroom and we're reading out the the pages together and we're taking turns reading. And it's delightful and we do it as a family. But there are other parts where if we did this as four of us, it would drive each one of us insane. And so if it comes to bath time, just deal with it. I don't need to be in the room while you're doing it. Let's just yeah. move on with Otherwise, life, it's we? really not taking anything away from the mental and physical load of parenting. No. That's no. what so many people say. They're like, yeah, well, my partner takes the kids to swimming lessons, but I've got to make sure that the bathers are in the bag, the towels are there, the <laughs> enrolment's done, the done, it's been paid for. And you're like, by then you may as well just be going to the fucking swimming lesson. Like, yeah, it, it, I think sometimes you can feel like, oh my God, it's this beautiful family activity, but 
you've missed out on an opportunity to do something for yourself or have some time on your own and we've got to pick and choose what really needs to be done as a family and what can be divided and conquered. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think another thing is to remind yourself that when you fill up your cup in any way that you can, you mentally look at things differently. You know, like if you actually step back and just go, I'm going to put up a boundary and today I'm going to not do the washing. I'm just not going to do that today. I'm going to have a bath or I'm just going to read maybe two pages of a book or I'm just going to have a glass of water. I've been learning recently just to do like tiny little things, which in a normal day would seem so insignificant, but doing these over a period of time, like drinking one cup of water each day has literally made me feel so good about myself that it has changed the way I think about things. So I don't know. I just feel like even if it's not relating directly to your partner, doing things for yourself to make you feel good can also be a massive part of making this your half of the couple. Well, yeah. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So if you're coming in there with an empty cup, you're going to be asking your partner to pour into yours because yes. you're you're dying of thirst, right? If you're able to fill up your cup, even partway, what you're bringing into the relationship is something of abundance that you can give out. Absolutely, it makes total sense. And for many of us, our currency is time, right? Because that's what we're so poor of. And so if we're able to pause for two whole minutes and slowly drink a glass of water, or if we're able to carve out 12 minutes and have a bath, right? Like what we're pouring into that is is minuscule as you're saying, but it's actually a really conscious, intentional time where we are using that currency for us, for our sense of self and our own sense of needing to be filled up rather than constantly giving it to somebody else. I think it's spot on. Well, you didn't say it was a beautiful question, but it is spot on. (laughs) (laughs) Sensitive, much on a beautiful question front. Well, that was most of the things that we wanted to cover. Obviously, it's so individual to every relationship and partnership, but I think the main thing that we want to say is needing help as a couple is is normal. It doesn't mean that your relationship is broken. And also sometimes it is time in life to call it quits on relationships as well, and I don't think that should be seen as a failing either. Is there any advice that you could give to our listeners before we leave you? Ah, beautiful question. Uh, Can I say? (laughs) I made that one myself. You did. It was lovely. It was great. Yeah, I think, look, first of all, normalise. It is, we, as I was saying before, we go to a mechanic when our car is broken. We go to a dentist if we've got a toothache. We go to the doctor if we need an immunisation. Like, we have this sense that we should just know, we should just innately somehow magically know how to make this thing work, right? And that's a really unreasonable expectation to put on us. And it's such an enormously high bar to be trying to reach without any support or skills. So if you come and work with someone who has been trained in this area for a couple of sessions and go, hey, you're actually doing great. Can I give you like two or three strategies that are going to be game changers for you? And do it early. Don't wait six years until things are so, so awful that now it's make or break. Notice it early and go, hey, things are going pretty well. Well, they're going, okay, do you reckon we could make it even better? 
Why don't we just go and figure out this little part of our relationship? And then that bit's going to be great too, right? And so it's, yeah, getting in early, losing the stigma. One of the great things about COVID, right, is the stigma around mental health has decreased incredibly. And the stigma around relationship support has also decreased because this has been an unprecedented, how many times have we heard that word? Time, right? where it is unreasonable for us to think that we could just casually manage this experience without support. So getting support is a sign of strength and wisdom, not a sign of weakness at all. So look around, feel free to have a chat with someone over the phone. Most therapists are very willing to have a little chat with you, see if you feel like a good fit and then yeah, ask for help if you need it. It's really valuable. That is a beautiful answer to a beautiful episode. And Megan, we really appreciate you coming on and sharing your wisdom and your expertise with us today. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Love to chat. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Bump. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and give us a review. If you didn't, good on you. You can also follow us on Instagram at beyondthebump.podcast to stay up to date on behind the scenes and future episodes. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.